Welcome to the Vitruvian Human Podcast. What if our entire purpose here was to embark on a quest to understand our place in the cosmos? Greetings, curious humans, and welcome to the Vitruvian Human Podcast, the quest to understand our place in the cosmos with an uncensored exploration of body, mind, and soul through the vessels of art, science, and spirituality. If you would like to know more about your podcast hosts, Chris Ferris or Maylene Joy, you can visit the links below. If you like what you hear and you'd love to know more, make sure you like, comment, share, or subscribe to the relevant platforms. It's important to state that Maylene and I do not necessarily support or agree with the views of our guests. Having said that, it's now time to introduce the next amazing human who has generously given their time to speak with us today. This man has literally paved the way with plants, inspiring generations young and old with the love of Mother Nature through the practice of permaculture. It is with great pleasure we introduce Aaron Mears. I've done it before. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Aaron Mears, so good to have you along. Thank you for driving all of this way. <laughs> How are you doing today, man? Very, really good. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a really good drive here. Actually, um, <laughs> it was pretty funny. I was driving along and um, had this little jumping ant on the, on the side of the window. And if anyone's ever been bitten by a jumping ant, it is absolutely terrifying. So the whole time I was driving down to Brisbane... I had the, the just the quiet fear that somewhere lurking in the car there was a jumping ant that could bite me at any second. So I'm prepared now. I'm 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 on my toes. Did you have uh, suspenseful orchestral music playing by any chance? No. <laughs> just <a laughs> funnily enough, I just I love listening to uh, hip hop, and that's that's what you know really calms me down. Okay. Some really aggressive hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So that helps you with the anxiety of the jumping ant. It certainly does. Yeah. Fantastic. And yeah. you made it here unscathed. I'm here unscathed. Wonderful. Ready to chat. So from the place that you came from, Lulu's Birch, mm -hmm. uh, you are quite involved or shouldn't say quite involved. Your life is being a permaculture advocate and yes. practitioner. Is that correct? That is correct. For those who don't know what permaculture is, it's permanent culture or permanent agriculture. So you're setting up a system in your garden that's going to last potentially forever, permanent. And you're growing food that works with nature rather than against. So we've got this industrialized agriculture at the moment where it's just all monoculture, horizons upon horizons of the same crops, which takes the same minerals out, which attracts the same pests. So they need lots of pesticides and chemical fertilizers to make that system work. Permaculture is the complete opposite. It's let's plant biodiversity, get different plants. They're going to repel, you know, different pests and other plants. They're going to put the minerals back into the soil. So all it takes is a just a, a human or even an animal just to come along and do a little bit of maintenance to it and keep the system going for time immortal. Yeah, I see. <laughs> so is it in a way mimicking what nature is already doing, but tweaking it a little bit? Uh, yeah, so it's working out the laws of nature and incorporating it into the garden so you know we plant on contour planting for biodiversity water harvesting 
um, bringing in our pollinators, all, all those types of plants that it's basically just mimicking nature to, yeah. to get amazing organic vegetables and then also teaching it to kids as well, which is good fun. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Yeah. Well, in saying that, I was wondering if you could please um, briefly go through the main principles of yeah. permaculture for... Yeah. Uh, for Chris and myself and also our listeners. Yes. Yes. Um, so the main principles of permaculture, I mean, they're, they're, they're quite simple. And in, some people call it permaculture, but other people just call it common sense. <laughs> it's looking after the earth. So earth care. Yeah. That's, that's you know, pretty um, pretty stock standard. Look after the earth and it will look after you. So you got earth care, um, people care. So looking after the people that are in your garden, in your community, in your, you know, state, or if even in government, you know, you want to be looking after the people in the country. So everyone just looking after each other, looking after the planet, and then also fair share. So a return of surplus. So all the abundance that you get, you can either give it to other people or you can give it to animals. You can compost it, put it back into the soil, but it's closing the loop. So we're always trying to create closed loop cycles to keep the nutrients in the cycle rather than, you know, we see farmers burning off crops, um, you know, discarding, you know, unsightly fruits that just go into the, the landfill. We're just like, no, we're going to take those fruits. If they've gone off, we put them in a, into a composting system. If they're just a little bit wonky, then we give them to people who are in need. So yeah, earth care, people care, fair share. And then from there... It's all about just observing nature and observing the patterns in nature. So the first is observe and interact. So we're just looking at, you know, whenever we turn up to, uh, you know, I'm a permaculture consultant um, and I look at the things that are on, on someone's property and I just look at all the environmental factors. Where's the wind coming from? Where's the water course going down the land? You know, is it steep land? Is it flat land? Um, where's the sun? Is it facing north for the northern northern aspect? Um, and then I'll you know build a garden based on those parameters. Um, nowadays, people will buy a house. They'll put their vegetable garden in sort of the out of sight, out of mind type of area. Mm. The nursery's on the other side of the property, and then things just start going awry because they're probably creating a garden that's based more on uh, aesthetically pleasing, mm. more so than incorporating the garden into their lifestyle, which food is a, an enormous part of anyone's lifestyle. It's what keeps us alive. Um, so incorporating food into your property and into your lifestyle more so than just having it as like a little erroneous garden at the back of the property that sort of hides in the shade. Um, it's all about incorporating it. Yeah, it's certainly something, It's as you're talking, it makes me think of my garden and I'm not surprised as to why certain things just fail amazingly mm -hmm. when I try to grow them, when we've tried to grow uh, vegetables or things like that. And it makes me realize that our suburban living quarters are not set up for that purpose. They're just high density, just yeah. get as many people in there and just buy your food from the shops. Mm -hmm. And when I watched your one of your videos about looking at the, the direction of the sun and then setting mm -hmm. up your garden according to that, yeah, it seems so simple. Yeah. But it blew my mind mm. that, of course, 
that you would do that because that's what the plants are going to do. They're going to respond <laughs> yeah. to the sun because yeah. that's why we're all here. Mm. It's just, I mean, the, the little things like that that you start extrapolating that out and realizing why you would have much more success growing things in, a, in an environment like what you have set up at Lulu's Perch Definitely. compared to in our backyard here. Yeah. Well, that's uh, there's a common fallacy that if you live in a, a suburban or even a um, high-density urban area that you're kind of you know stuck and you can't really do much about that situation but you know you can always grow vertically you can always grow up uh, up walls and have you know higher pot plants up above Mm -hmm. but one thing that people always forget is that you've got all these suburban homes that are backed onto each other and each of those suburban homes have got backyards if the fence was to be removed you have this nature strip all the way through every single suburban plot there's a nature strip through that where everyone has you know now at least half an acre yeah of growing space but because we're also divided and this is mine that's yours and this is this you know everyone's privatized and you know very 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 compartmentalized yeah. as well in their thinking about um, living spaces but when people share food and when people you know unite over the, the fact that we all need food um, I've got friends who have pulled down their fences with their neighbors and now from just having like a tiny little backyard they have this enormous backyard that has this big chicken run at the back vegetables food forest and now the neighbors on the other side of them are thinking about pulling down their fence and joining onto them so wherever there's a problem in permaculture there is a solution and sometimes the problem over there is the solution here in permaculture mm. um so yeah w- once you start changing your perspective on ha- how you can grow food and you start applying the principles and start doing a bit of random assembly of where things could go or shouldn't go and you start you know, getting outside of your own head um, you see all these solutions start to unfold and that's what permaculture is all about, you know, creating solutions where, we're, you know, we're stumbling across all these problems. Yeah. Mm. And actually what stood out for me most when you were talking about the principles, the words abundance, surplus, mm-hmm. and observing the nature of reality. Yeah. And that really stood out to me because... I've noticed that there's such a mentality of lack and scarcity. Mm -hmm. And if we can just peel back the layers and simplify it a little bit more, just by starting with observing the nature of reality, which is inherently abundant and has surplus. Mm -hmm. And what you just said then about the deconditioning, the deconstruction, Mm to the point where it's pulling down fences so that we can start to work together and allow the abundance. Yes. And it's a process of allowing. Yeah. And I really like that. Mm. And I think it has so much to teach us. Yeah. There's, um, there's emotional fences that we have to overcome. There's political fences that are completely redundant. Mm. Um, there's all these, you know, social constructs and fences to the point of actually erecting physical fences between us all that we actually have to cross those mental fences first. And I come across it all the time whenever I'm doing a consultancy and there's someone who's like really keen, I want a permaculture garden. And I go in there and I, I make this, you know, really beautiful design that harvests water and it's got 
you know, captures the flow of nature as it just goes through. And um, I get a lot of neighbors looking over the fence like, oh, yeah, what's going on over here? You know, looking over, I'm, I go, oh, yeah, a bit of permaculture, you know, using mulch, working with the contour, water harvesting. And they come from this sort of old Australian post-World War II, mm-hmm. 1950s front lawn grass with the hills hoist um, washing line. And that's what a garden should be to them. So as soon as they see something else coming into, you know, over the, over the fence, they see this permaculture garden slowly, you know, unfolding. Mm. There's this weird feeling that they're threatened by it. And I, I'm still yet to work it out. Maybe we're coming across kind of the things like, you know, these psychological fences that people are putting up between us all. Um, and it's a, it's a very strange thing to actually come across people who start getting angry when they see a garden being built. Stop progress. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a really, really strange thing. I've seen, I've seen gardens bring absolute joy to people's lives. There was, um, I did a consultancy for one couple, an elderly couple, um, had a really poor relationship with their granddaughter, who's probably eight or nine. And um, they always, you know, were at odds and butting heads. And then she saw my, um, my permaculture design that I had planned for their garden. And she instantly was just like attracted to it. And she's just like, oh, and she was walking around with it and saying, oh, there's that tree. That tree's going to go there. And she was connected to this garden that it wasn't even built yet. It was just grass out the backyard. And she was instantly drawn to it. And then every, uh, every you know, weekend that I'd you know, be working on this garden, bringing in soil and mulch and plants and rocks and you know, making it all this beautiful wonderland and playground, um, she's been saying, oh, I really want to go to Nen and Pop's place. I want to go into the garden. And they go in the garden together and they bond over plants in, 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 this, in this garden. And so I've seen it just bring so much joy and actually connect people who were completely disconnected in the first place and, you know, actually at loggerheads for some reason. Mm. And, um, and then on the other end of the scale, I've seen it bring absolute anxiety and anger where I've had people swearing F and C's at me for even trying to bring mulch into their garden. I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's calm it down. I'll explain what I'm doing. And then when you explain it, they come up with all these weird and extravagant fears that come out like oh that's going to catch on fire and that's going to cause you know respiratory mold or something and then these are people that have hired you to come into no neighbors like people who are looking over the fence and i've done other consultancies where people just drive by really slowly like what what is going on now i'm just like oh god and it's it's taken it's really very suspicious behavior yeah Yeah, it's like, you know, there's this house that was on the corner of this main street and it's a very prominent place. And as soon as I started putting down cardboard to suppress the weeds and the and the grasses that aren't really doing much um, for the landscape at the moment, I started putting cardboard down and then mulch on top of that to get a nice blank slate. Everyone was just slowing down like, whoa, what is going on here? What's, you know, that, yeah, when people aren't used to someone engaging in a solution, you know, people are just sort of, 
they're so caught up in problems that are happening in the neighborhood and the world and blah 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 yeah when someone actually engages in the solution sometimes you meet more resistance <laughs> which is a very very odd thing but it's probably like a, a learned helplessness or some sort of conditioning that yeah when they see something actually progressing oh i've got to stop it tall poppy you know cut it off and yeah it's it's it's, it's a very phenomenon. very it's a very very interesting thing that i've come across and i i you know i i would never be able to tell you when I was younger that I would be a permaculture gardener. Like I wanted to be this, that, and the other. And gardening is just where I've found my place and my, my little niche and what I want to do, my passion. And um, it's teaching me so much. The garden has been my, my, my biggest teacher, my biggest mentor, because this, the psychology that comes with it, the beautiful patterns in nature and all the beautiful flows that come with it. Um, it has taught me so much about myself, about other people, about yeah. society, because every single civilization in the history of mankind has needed an agricultural system to survive. And so being a part of that, um, you start seeing flaws and benefits and amazing things and joyful things and fearful things. It's, um, it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> mm. And mm. it's in... From what I've experienced in my amateur attempts at gardening by comparison, <laughs> is that we're all amateurs in the yeah. garden, trust me. <laughs> yeah. Is it's that an unlimited library. Nature has a system of community. Mm. Everyone's working together in some capacity to build life. Yeah. And we I'm sure maybe there are species other than us that do it, but we seem to be the ones that kind of pride ourselves on doing the exact opposite and basing our not entirely but in a large part of uh, society has this kind of separatist attitude and that's how we're going to survive by doing things on our own right. and, and yeah. stepping on everyone else to get there yeah whereas if you look at the way that plants grow and the way that insects interact with the plants yeah. and then the things that eat the insects and everything else yeah your nothing would happen if it wasn't for this communal activity and approach to things exactly whether on purpose or not yeah i remember um i had one student and we were, we were just shoveling in the mulch pile where all the wood chips are we use wood chips for mulch and we're shoveling and sometimes when you just shovel you know doing something with your hands kids begin to sort of open up um and we we're just shoveling in this mulch pile and he was like aaron you know what what are all these you know beetles and little millipedes and centipedes doing i said well they're the arthropods and they're the ones, they're like the wood chippers. They chip up all the wood chip and then they poop it out and they give it to worms who, you know, eat much softer food because they don't have teeth. So they eat that and then they poop it out and they give it to the bacteria. He goes, well, what are, you know, who do the bacteria give it to? And I say, well, well, then it goes to the microorganisms and the mycelium fungus that's all through it. And um, he said, well, what do the mycelium fungus do with it? I said, well, they attach to the tree roots and they give it back to the tree. And he goes, they give it back to the tree. And there's this big gum tree. He goes, well, he's following the nutrient up. And then he followed it to the, like the, the leaves. And then he said, but the leaves just come down here. And I go, yeah, and it just comes back. And it's a big cycle. And he goes, mm -hmm. and he had this big aha moment. He goes, oh, they're working as a team. And that little moment where he worked out that all those insects were working as a team yeah. to create that cycle, that kid was never the same again. <laughs> changed forever. He was changed. He, you know, it was funny because he, he's a, um, a, a mad footballer yeah. at, the, at, the, at his school. And 
once he worked out that they were working as a team, he became much more of a team player yeah. on the football field, which is a really, really odd connection between the food soil web and a football team. But the idea of a team mm-hmm. really ingrained itself and embossed itself on his heart. And he was just like, no, we've got to work as a team, boys. No, nah, that's it. We're, yeah, we're, wow. yeah, and it was just like, I didn't teach him that. The mother nature was the teacher there. I, t- I facilitated it. Yeah. I just showed him the, the cycle, but mother nature was the main teacher there. And now his football has, yeah. has improved. It's just like... What an amazing thing for a kid to learn. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I love that. I love how you said that the garden is an unlimited library. Mm. I really like that. And from what you just shared story with this kid and how he used that as well we can see that the garden is a metaphor for life yeah and this is one of the things i'm really interested in personally uh in my own holistic healing practice is using gardening as a therapeutic as a healing tool or a tool for well-being or as a therapeutic tool and there's so much research about the mental and emotional benefits of gardening not that we need research to prove it because we can just experience it and realize it for ourselves but sometimes the research helps to put things into perspective Mm -hmm. so much so that even the ceo of the national health service in england suggests that maybe gardening can be prescribed by GPs instead of antidepressants. Yeah. Wow. And so that's one of the things I'm curious about with you is what have you noticed in your own life or the lives of your clients or people that you work with about how gardening in the form of permaculture has mm-hmm. impacted your well-being? Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, this, this is actually a fantastic um, segue because I was actually a mental health nurse for 10 years before I even became you know, a permaculturalist. So I was a mental health nurse for the better part of 10 years and, you know, seeing people get prescribed all sorts of antipsychotics and antidepressants and antidepressants mixed with Zyprexa, the trifecta with diazepam and all sorts. And it's just like administering um, medications and it was absolutely horrible. And I remember one of the occupational therapists there, she started a, um, a garden um, just in the back courtyard and the way that people just gravitated towards that garden, and I wasn't even into gardening at this time. I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, grow some tomatoes, blah, blah, blah. But just to see people really step up into these roles of having um, a purpose and being able to grow food and provide food and give, hey, look what I grew. And there was that, you know, sense of sharing. And that was just a little snippet that kind of, you know, put itself in its, into, into my mind. And I was like, well, that was really interesting. You know, someone who was normally quite you know, agitated is now really calm when they're tending to the tomatoes or the potatoes or whatever. And, um, and from being a mental health nurse, I went into teaching. And so I, became, I went to uni, studied to be a teacher. And I went into the classroom and the classrooms were just like rows and columns and the kids were all like, you know, you put your head like that. They go, what are you doing? You know, you can, you can, you can see it's like this yeah. panopticon of, you know, being able to look at which kids out of line and the kids at the back were mucking up. The kids at the front were dominating. The kids in the middle were just sort of like meandering in between the two. And, um, but what I found was that kids always just wanted to go outside. You know, as soon as that bell rang, ding, they're outside, they're playing. 
they're just mucking around on the handball courts, they're climbing trees, just playing soccer or whatever it is. Um, and it was about, you know, thinking, well, my mental health patients that I had, they gravitated towards the garden. These kids are gravitating immediately to the outdoor area as soon as that bell rings. Seems that people really want to gravitate towards nature when they're to, to learn or to, to heal. All I need to do is work out how I can facilitate that and harness that energy of kids being kids and patients wanting to be outdoors and with nature. Um, being able to harness that into you know a, a, a greater purpose, and so I travelled to uh, Peru and I was in the Amazon jungle. I was living with a Shipibo tribe, and I was having an, an amazing time just looking at how their um, whole agricultural system works. It was absolutely fantastic. Plant medicines, foods, everything. They're just growing everything for their healing purposes. Um, even cosmetic makeups, everything. They just grew. And I remember just seeing the pattern of the way that they were growing things. And it wasn't just any typical agriculture where it's just like, you know, here's all your garden beds yeah. and here's all this. They had everything on contour, which means that it's perfectly level across, across a sloping landscape. It's not uphill. It's not downhill. The beds run across the landscape. Mm. And I was like, what is this sorcery, you know? Because <laughs> they, they, they were harvesting rainwater and all the erosion that was coming down the hill, it had come into their veggie beds and they would slow it down, soak it into the earth. And then, you know, um, all those nutrients and all that all that water would go into the veggie beds rather than just running off down the river and out the Amazon and mm. out the heads in Belém. And I was like, you know, what is this? And this is a, there was a Westerner there. He said, it's actually permaculture. And I'd never even heard of it. And mm. I was like, what is, you know, <laughs> this is crazy. Like, it's so beautiful in its in its design. Like, you know, when you, I'm looking at all these Alex Gray posters that you've got here and they're, you know, they're, they're, people gravitate towards pattern and symmetry. Um, and I was just like, this, this is incredible. And I went back to um, Sydney where I was studying to be a teacher and, um, there's a guy called uh, Jeff Lawton. He's like one of the the main the main guys in um, permaculture, and um, I, w I really wanted to um, learn more about it. And so I started looking at um, permaculture and all the videos. And what I would do, I'd take it back to the mental health ward when I went there to work during the holidays. And um, we had all these patients coming in from rural and remote areas into our hospital. They were overflowing from the, from the rural mental health services into our hospital. And they were just like coming in with like suicidal ideation and depression. And I was just like, whoa, you know, what's this? And the doctor would just write suicidal ideation, secondary to situational crisis. And we had a big list of them. I'm like, situational crisis? Like, you can't just have a big list of all these people with situational crisis and not know what the situation is. And they're like, oh, that's out of our scope of practice. We don't need to know about what the situation is. So I was like, well, I do. <laughs> um, and I would ask them, like, what's the situation? And they're like, mate, out there there's droughts. There's If there's not droughts, there's floods. Our cattle are dying. We're under the thumb from big agricultural companies. We're under the thumb from banks and loans to keep our agriculture going. Um, and they're just getting to the point where they can't handle um, – they can't handle the situation out there. There's too many environmental factors out there that are just, you know, crushing, crushing their business. 
and they've got too many people breathing down their necks to, to force them to use chemical fertilizers and pesticides and they've got these contracts anyway so i thought okay there must be a way that you know, we can we can use permaculture to get out of this problem and i remember seeing jeff lawton's documentary called greening the desert i'm not sure if you've seen it mm. it's um he basically got given the hardest place to grow food in the world and that's on a salt flat in jordan three to four hundred meters below sea level next to the dead sea with little to no rainfall like this place is like the moon as uh, bill mollison one of the guys from permaculture would describe it this place is like the moon and you can't grow food there it's, mm. in, it's next to impossible and so he started bringing in all these plants that absolutely loved salt and they'd draw the salt up make it inert in its uh, leaves and then they'd chop it and drop it turn it into mulch and they start building soil wow. with, with plants yeah and once they started building soil, they started introducing all these other pioneer species, all these nitrogen fixes, and they started actually creating shade to prevent the water from being evaporated. So any rain that did come, they're actually holding onto it. Mm. And I'm watching this, just like, going, what the hell? You, you literally can grow food anywhere. So I brought this documentary onto the ward and I showed these, you know, every time we had like a and one of these farmers come in, I'd show them the documentary and you see this like glint in their eye like there's hope like to be able to yeah, sit there and for them to see that there is hope that they can change what's going on yeah because you know they, they're constantly being told that there's you know you can't just grow food in a drought and um for them to get that hope back there's that spark of hope that comes back into their eye and i i realized that no medication could give you that no medication could make you go all right there's, there's something we can do about it. And that for me was just like, all right, I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, and I'm a gardener, but screw all that. I'm going to be all three in one. I'm going to be a permaculture teacher, and I'm going to teach people. I'm going to move up to this farm, uh, Lulu's Perch, um, up in um, Sunshine Coast, and I'm going to start my own education institute, really, my own, my own classroom. And I'm going to have people come, and I'm going to teach them everything that I learned, and I'm yeah. just going to try and teach as many people as possible and um it was it was fascinating because i wanted to do a permaculture course and jeff lawton he said um if you if you can tell me which one of my documentaries you like the best and why i'll consider you for a scholarship for the permaculture course and i was a student at the time and i'm just like oh i don't have any money for that i can't do that and so i wrote him like just a message about the stuff that i've been doing in the mental health ward um and stuff that i want to be doing in schools and he was just like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. That's exactly what I want. Someone who gets a permaculture course, that's what I want them to do. With the, That's the traje trajectory I want someone to, mm. to move on. Mm. So he gave me the scholarship and I was just like, oh my God, okay, this is it. This is actually wheels are in motion. And I've just come back from Peru and all these stars are aligning. And I'm just like, all right, I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the roller coaster. Let's do this. And um did my permaculture course i was studying at uni at the same time it was all you know really full on and um i you know, i finally got got the the certificate moved up to the sunshine coast started you know my my farm and i actually went to the greening the desert site uh, to do my internship so i got to work on the farm i got to see how it all worked and i was just like this is incredible like it's amazing that all the neighbors around the area 
originally laughed at them mm. when they arrived because they're just like, you cannot grow food here. Yeah. Who's this guy trying to come in here and tell us that, you know, we can grow food. And now you go there and it's like an oasis in the middle of this salty desert, you know, only a couple of kilometers from the Dead Sea. And now all the neighbors are like, oh my God, like they're sending their kids in because they're probably a little bit too ashamed to go in there themselves. So they send their kids in there to do reconnaissance. Go find out how Jeff's working with the water. Go find out how Jeff's, you know, using those trees to draw salt up. So the mm. kids go there and then they come back and go, well, daddy's doing this, that and the other. And then they all of a sudden, all these people in the community are actually doing the same thing. And he started this like seed in the middle of the of the Jordanian desert that's now just like growing out like that. And it's actually fascinating to watch and i'm just like wow this is phenomenal and then i met um a guy called dan dayton dan dayton and aaron Sorensen, and they've been teaching permaculture in schools for over 15 years now and been running the living it's called the living classroom project yeah and um they've been taking all this knowledge to teach kids as young as kindergarten all the way up to high school They've created this permaculture pathway of kids that have just like started in primary school all the way through high school and they're, they're, they're growing up with the permaculture principles so they can go out and they can do exactly the same thing. And uh, yeah, I've been working with them for about three years now, working in schools and teaching permaculture to kids and bringing the magic back to the garden. Yeah. I, think I think we've kind of lost that connection and lost that magic that comes with the garden. And being able to teach that to kids, I love poetry and I love finding funny ways of, you know, being able to, you know, transfer information from like an information dense brain into a kid's mind where where they go, oh, I want to learn that because it sounds cool. It seems from what you've said, and it's it's kind of made me realize the the different formats that are available to us and the particular format that. I suppose the the Western world has projected onto the rest of Earth is this grid-like formation where everything must be in line because that's how we can keep a check on it. Because yeah. as you were saying, it's the, the kids in the classroom, they're all in a straight line. Then the agri- agriculture is the same yeah. thing. Everything is done in a straight line and in grids so we know where everything is and everything can be kept in its cell, mm-hmm. like a jail. Yeah, And nothing in nature actually works like that Mm. it all projects out fractally Fractally, and and in circular circular motion and it's like if you take a child and put it into a cell and say you do this and you stick to this curriculum and then you you know and but don't do any better than anyone else Mm. that's like what the the curriculum or the the cells are made to do whereas if you allow that child to blossom like in an outside classroom or learning about plants and learning that things actually act in a more spontaneous way then it's like they blossom like the plants do yeah and segue from there into the next question is with the the concepts of biomimicry and the fact that patterns repeat in nature yeah first explain if you can what biomimicry is and then i want to ask you some more (laughs) deeper things um so bio is life and mimicry is mimic, so to copy, so to copy the natural world, so copying you know the life that's already in the natural world and using it to solve problems that we might be coming across. Because if we think about it, Earth's this 
two to three or four billion year old research and development lab that's been constantly evolving and changing and working out the best way to do things. And here we are in the blink of an eye, the small slither of time that humanity has been on this planet. Um, we can learn a lot from a couple of billion years of research. And that's the natural world is telling us, hey, we've come across this problem before and we can teach you how to do it. Oh, you want to learn how to fly? Yeah, we've already done that. Or you want to learn how to breathe underwater? Yeah, we've already done that. You want to learn how to not have bacteria stick to you? Well, look at a Galapagos shark. Yeah, we've already done that. You know, So all the problems that humanity is facing right now have been solved billions of years ago. Yeah. It's just about us reconnecting with nature to go, oh, how, how, how do we do that? And so biomimicry would be copying nature. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're going to be amazing plagiarists. Of course. <laughs> and we're going to copy what nature does because if we want to live with nature, we have to work with her at the same time. Yeah. So biomimicry is, yeah, yeah copying right. that. Well, it's like we gave up our ability to survive in the wild to create things that help us survive in captivity, in yeah. our own captivity. Mm. And I suppose the best way to do that is to, to mimic what's already there. Mm. With the idea that everything is a repeat of the next thing, if you look at one thing, you can find that same structure in everything else. It's like, yeah. all right. Where do you think that comes from? What do you think that means? Is it an eventuation of accidental evolution? Did someone design it? What are your thoughts? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult question to answer. But what, you know, what we do know is that our reality consists of patterns and tessellating patterns that actually form the th everything that we feel, hear and see. So once we know what those patterns are, we can pretty much understand not just the physical realm. Because let's take, for example, we take a physical pattern like the dendritic pattern so the dendritic pattern is the um, almost what, what looks like a river or looks like tree roots or it looks like branches or it looks like the veins that are coming out of your heart or it looks like the um, the blood vessels that are connected to your lungs sure. it looks like lightning you know this is one pattern that has so many different applications to this reality yeah or i'm doing this naturally i'm, I'm thinking of a spiral so everything spirals out. So mm -hmm. you look at the snail shell or you look at a ram's horn yeah. or you look at the way the sunflower unfolds, which then the sunflower, then you start looking at the way the wind starts to tumble. Then you start to see cyclones. Then you start to see tornadoes all the way down to looking at the way the water goes down your drain plug yeah. all the way up to the solar system spinning around in a big spiral. These are patterns which when we can understand one pattern we can understand all of its practical applications for the, the, the rules and laws of our physical universe mm. that all tessellate together to form what we know as the, the material world. Mm. Now, when we start going into the what's behind <laughs> the material world, I think it has the patterns that we're seeing are almost like the the, the, the fabric that might be over the, the, the mechanics that create this universe. And mm. Because there's a, 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 big, um, a big emphasis on the emotional landscape of what's happening and the emotional and the, and the, the, the landscape of consciousness as mm. well. 
Because if everything in this universe is recyclable, there's not one particle that we're looking at right now that hasn't been here since the birth of this universe, just been recycled through so many different forms. You know, it happens more on occasion with food because, you know, you grow food from the soil, the soil comes up to the plant, the plant, you know, plant then feeds us through, you know, using sunlight. We eat the plant, comes out the other end and goes into some sort of treatment system and then back into the cycle and keeps going around. There's other harder ones that might be last a little bit longer, but every single thing is recyclable. And scientists always say that there's, you can't actually destroy anything in the physical universe. And then you think, well, if everything is recycled and so is energy, because everything is just energy and everything's just connected like little magnets, you know, tiny little ions and atoms all just connected like magnets. If even the energy that holds everything together is recyclable, then when we start to think about the energy that is created with the mind, which we can measure with ECGs and the waves that come over our brain waves when we think of certain things, then if everything is recyclable, then what's to say that consciousness doesn't get recycled as well? And that's something where we, you know, we start to think, is the brain the generator of consciousness or is the brain the receiver mm. of consciousness? If it's the generator of consciousness, we're thinking more about just like the, the physical science of how the world works, which is, is true in a sense, like it's all tessellating patterns, it all connects. But that, that's, that's the fabric, that's the layer that we see. Mm. There's something else happening underneath. It's like the, the iceberg, you mm. know, um, just bobbling there where over the top it might be all snow and whatnot but underneath there's this huge uh, force whether you want to call it love or consciousness something that connects everybody together and you know you can experience it through joy through meditation through breathing techniques there's this other layer underneath you know this there's this other substance underneath the physical layer that way we feel i mean that's what our, our yeah. heart and consciousness is there for we feel things that are happening it's like you get a sixth sense that you're in a good place or a bad place and you, there's nothing to tell you why mm. but you just feel it and people go oh yeah i've had one of those feelings before yeah so, so is everyone we've all had you know strange dreams strange feelings and sometimes those feelings are completely 100 percent accurate and correct and they told you the right thing it's like, did I pick up on someone's energy? Well, what does that mean? Well, if everyone's emitting energy, now if I'm emitting a negative vibe, someone can go, dude, that guy's got a weird vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so to put it on a really you know, base level, uh, we all have these feelings. There's something underneath the, the physical layer of reality that we, you know, that we can all feel, but I think we're not trying hard enough to access it through our, through the natural channels yeah and um i think through all different types of meditation and yoga or even people who just want to do running and fitness or people who want to do breathing techniques um there's so many different ways to access it. you can access it through art it's just whatever brings you joy is drawing you towards that that underneath layer you could call it mm. the upside down but in the good way yeah. <laughs> not, not the stranger things way um, and things that bring us joy take us there and whatever brings you joy and brings other people joy at the same time, then you're on the right path. 
So I don't think you should be aiming to achieve any type of position or status or attain material wealth. At the end of the day, I feel like the love that we make is the love that we take. Because if everything's recycled and we go somewhere after death or whatever, I think the, the best philosophy to have is, you know, the love that you make is the love that you take. And I can make as much money or have as many clothes and cars and blah, blah, blah. It won't get you anywhere. It's what you, what you feel, that, that connection to the, that underneath quantum mechanic love place. Yeah. Doesn't it really have a name yet? I don't think. Or maybe it does. Does it? I think there are multiple names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can pick one. Yeah, yeah. I'll just call it the, the, the underneath place. The underneath place, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I see it as, as you said, it's, it's, it's like the, the iceberg under, the, under mm. the tip or the big bit of ice under the, the tip of the iceberg. And it's as though everything that belongs to the mechanics of this reality is so much more bigger than what we see yet energetically it makes up uh such a smaller amount of matter well it's matter less mm. so it's like inversely proportionate that the physical world is is here and it's large right and we only glimpse a uh a sliver of the ethereal world mm-hmm. yet the ethereal world is the very thing that's allowing everything to be right okay so they're, they're it's a symbiotic relationship yeah and and then mm. they're not separate from each other in that and you, I, I think that you agree with this as well that the does the brain generate consciousness or is it a receptor of consciousness perhaps it is it is both it's mm. you know does are there molecules and chemicals in our brain that allow for mystical experience and is that all it is or do the chemicals need to be at a certain coordinate to allow that mystical experience to happen right. and they are one and the same thing mm. There was, I don't remember where I saw it because I watch so many podcasts and I watch so much stuff, but they did, they had found the the God part of the brain where Mm -hmm. this particular scientist was stimulating one of the, somewhere in the brain with an electrical stimulator and the participants in the study. Like the transcranial? Perhaps. Yeah. We'll go with that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. The participants were experiencing a presence in the room. They're a connection to God. And the scientist is like, well, that's all it is. Mm. Clearly, we found it. That's it. We don't have to keep looking. We found yeah. God. It's in your brain. It's just mm. a bunch of chemicals. It's a very reductionist way to look at it because it's easy to just pass it off and say, well, that's all it is because you know we can't prove it yet because our technology is not good enough. But what if that part of the brain is the receptor mm. for speaking to whatever you want to call God or the, you yeah. know, the all that is the collective spirit what if we need that as the antenna and Mm. and to say that that is physically damaged then they can go well then if you don't have that physical part and you can't experience it then that energy is not real because you know it's it's like they're one and the same thing yeah like even if you take it back to the plant kingdom i know so the the animal kingdom sorry um, and you think of all these different animals that have these amazing extrasensory perceptions, whether it be a bat and a dolphin for echolocation, mm-hmm. or you have insects with antenna that can pick up on um, the infrared um, signals of plants to find out which ones are healthy and which ones are sick, and they go for the sick ones. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. 
or sharks have these little nodules inside them that allow them to pick up on little disturbances in, in the water flow. Um, so many different extrasensory perceptions and like an, an electric eel has the ability to generate its own electricity to the point that it shocks you. Mm. Now, if you, you know, morbidly dissect these animals and try to find exactly where those uh, extrasensory, you know, powers come from, it's really hard to pinpoint where exactly it comes from and how it's being used and how it's being used consciously yeah. by the, the being that's inhabiting that, that body. So what's to say that humans don't have a similar type of extrasensory perceptor where they can pick up on all sorts of things and have their own little antenna? I mean, the way I like to think about it is if, if both eyes are closed, then which eye is watching your dreams? Like, how do you... Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Had to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have this ability to be able to uh, to visualize and perceive things um, that are there, aren't there. Mm. Um, so I think it's only a matter of time before we start to realize that we have, you know, a, a, our own little extrasensory perceptions where we can connect with nature. We can really feel like the the the, the energy that is being emitted by the natural world. Yeah. Um, but it's just a matter of how do we. interface with that and um i remember there's a guy called um jagananthi bose have you ever heard that name before no okay so this guy um he decided to put a um a lie detector test a lie detector clip onto a plant and he started to perform um acts to this plant to see if it registered on the lie detector test and so he would, you know, touch the plant and he'd get like a little reading. And then he decided to get a lighter. And even the thought of wanting to burn the plant actually sent the lie detector test um, needle. Yeah, wow. You know, uh, off, uh, you know, off the Richter. Yeah. And then it burnt the plant and it even went even further. He's like, oh my God, what the hell is going on here? The plant is responding to what I'm doing to it. And it's not only just responding to the, the physical action, but it's responding to the, the, the mental intention yeah. that it wants to have. And you know, look at all this up. It's all there. And um, there was a, um, a, a New York detective, I think he was from New York, who wanted to try it himself. And so he got the lie detector test and he, had, he, had, he was a police officer, so he had the, the technology to do this, put it on the plant. He found out the exact same results. This is like, you know, 20, 30 years later. And he went, well, how about this? How about I put little like sea monkeys, little shrimp, whatever they are, in like a little glass vial and I'll have a, a boiling pot of water underneath this glass vial and I'll have a timer that will choose a random point in time to drop those sea monkeys or little shrimp into the boiling water and let's see if the plant in the other room can pick up on the fact that little beings just got boiled to death. Yeah unfortunately and so he left the office and at a random point in time in the night the timer flipped the sea monkeys into the boiling water and it recorded the time that it did that and then he looked at the lie detector test and looked at the time that the 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 the, the sea monkeys were flipped in and there's this huge spike in the plant's um electromagnetic signal when the sea monkeys got put into the the boiling pot of water 
And he was just like, oh my God, the plants are actually responding to the, the life and death of other beings that aren't even in the same room, like they're on the opposite side of the wall. couldn't even see it. Um, and from there, um, all this you know, science came out, okay, how can we interface with plants? And um, there were some, I think there was a couple in Japan who did exactly the same thing and were you know, trying to elicit or to, tried to translate the, 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 the readings into a speaker to see if it could you know, um, be translated into a tone. Yeah. And they were uh, speaking Japanese to it and it was responding to their vocal tones and trying to mimic the noise that it was making and that when it got translated on the other side. And then all of a sudden, I think this is in like the 70s or 80s, all that, um, all that science magically just got swept away. Mm. And I think, it went into, I think it went to Russia. I don't know. Um, all stuff like that. Ends yeah, up in it, all, it all ends up there. But before that happened, there was this um, uh, really uh, kind of like famous case of this greenhouse that was connected to all the plants that were in it and the greenhouse was controlled by the plant's electromagnetic single signals mm-hmm. so whenever it was too hot they sent their they sent their signals to say it's too hot therefore it they open the windows oh it's too dry it set the sprinklers to be turned on and this was the beginning of human interface with the plant kingdom and all of a sudden that's just been swept away industrial agriculture yeah. taken over um but very, very interesting cases, and that's the type of magic that needs to be brought back into the garden. Yeah, I, I see, or I w- at least wish for, but I believe we will find ourselves in a world, and I think where at the right time, at least we might see it just before we go, that we end up in... When we're kids, we watch science fiction movies, or when our parents were kids, they watched comics, and then as they grow up, they then get into fields where they start designing their world based on their fantasies. Mm-hmm. So as we grow up, we watch these things and then that's, they're the things that we want to happen. Yeah. So we're creating our reality as we go, step mm-hmm. by step. You want the superpowers. I want, not the superpowers, just a world that's interfaced like that, mm. where the walls it's are... plugging in like Avatar. Absolutely, or yeah. Altered Carbon or something like yeah. that, <laughs> which is download our consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, I mean... Where we are now compared to where we were 50 years ago, just like, what's going to happen in 100 years? Mm. We have, you know, our, our if we had dwellings that were intertwined and connected to a plant consciousness that could read us mm-hmm. and we could live in harmony with them. Yeah. Well, there's a, a famous case of... Um, the Tokyo subway system. Have you heard of this story before? No. Um, it's the Tokyo subway system. Um, they use hundreds of uh, engineers and architects and billions of dollars to map out how they would, how the Tokyo subway system would play would would play out in the most energy efficient route as as possible to you know cut cost and maximum efficiency in time and whatnot. And so they spent billions of dollars mapping out this. Um, subway system getting all the surveyors out looking at all the different elevations blah 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 blah, and billions of dollars later they finally did it and then if you've ever heard of uh, Paul Stamets the mycologist uh, incredible mycologist he was uh, talking about how uh, uh, another mycologist 
came and said, well, I think I could do that much quicker and probably a lot cheaper. And I can, okay, do tell. And got a, a, um, a to scale map of the terrain of Tokyo. And in Tokyo, put like a, a little handful of sugared oats on Tokyo. And then on all the other train stations on this geographical maps, probably the sides of this table, would put sugared oats on each train station. Yeah. And they're like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> sugared oats. You know, you've reached the budget of 80 cents right now. And then inoculated the, the Tokyo area with um, Fisarium uh, mycelium mold. Okay. And then he goes, okay, let's just leave that overnight. And they all left and they all came back in the morning and the Fisarium mold had gone out looking for food and mapped out the most energy efficient pathway that the Fisarium mold could then receive the nutrients from each of the from each of the sugared oats and then coming back to, to Tokyo. Mm. And it's this beautiful yellow mycelium threads that have gone onto all the train stations and it mapped out the exact same pathway that all these architects and engineers and surveyors took years and billions of dollars to do and he did it with 80 cents overnight just by following the patterns in nature wow and so put a lot of people out of work (laughs) exactly (laughs) well then, then we start to think well then the 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 fungal strands underneath our soil actually have an intelligence that we can tap into and we could solve so many world problems with fungus really like you can you can grow fungus to whatever size and shape that you want it to, and you can start to replace styrofoam packaging. You can grow leathers out of it. Um, you can use it to, um, you can even have uh, electricity and data pass through Fisarium mold. So imagine being an electrician and rather than wiring up a house and getting all up in the roof, <laughs> imagine just like putting sugared oats. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. Around the house. Yes. But like, imagine in the future, uh, an electrician would just go in and just put a Fisarium mold, uh, a Fisarium mycelium pathway, and it would just find itself to each of the the power points, so yeah. to speak, and you could pass electricity through uh, a biological mycelium cord. I mean, this the way we're talking well and truly into the future. Like in permaculture, we think about future care, so it's not just what's happening now; it's not just what's happening before. We actually think what's going to happen in 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years. When you start to put those numbers in front of a kid and say, is what you're doing, can it be applied to 10 years, 100 years, 1,000? And they start to think in terms of that. Their minds just go into the future and they, they want to design things that are just like out of this world and their whole imagination comes unlocked. You know, most of what I'm talking about now was, you know, a kid saying, well, why couldn't we just use mycelium to do all the electrical work? Yeah. And you get a kid who's thinking like that I mean, you know, we're bringing up some, you know, pretty ecologically minded, um, you know, future leaders and it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to ask about the pesticides? Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, I was just really curious about whether there was use of pesticides or any sort of chemicals in permaculture. Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, The reason for that is what a lot of people may not realize is that soil health, so if we get the soil health right, then we get plant health, and we get plant health, we get human health. But what we'll find is that if you have poor soil health, what will start to take over are different types of weeds. 
And people think that they're weeds because we don't know what to do with them. We have no other use for them, so therefore we classify them as weeds. So something like cobbler's pegs, farmer's friends, the ones that stick to you, we classify as a weed. But in other cultures, because they're um, a culinary um, herb, you know, they're, they're, it's not called a weed in other countries. We only call things weeds because we don't know what to do with them. And I'm going to get to pests and pesticides in a second. And so what weeds start to pop up are actually indicators of what's happening in the soil. So most weeds are actually dynamic accumulators of particular materials that are missing in the topsoil. And they're sending their roots down to go and extract to bring up to the top to restore the equilibrium of the topsoil. Can you say that again, please? <laughs> yes, I can. That was amazing. Okay. <laughs> so, <poetic>. weeds. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. This is changing everybody's perspective on weeds. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're dynamic accumulators, so they, they want to mine particular minerals from the subsoil mm-hmm. where we can't access. So, they send their tap roots down, their hairnet roots go down to bring those minerals up to restore the equilibrium of your topsoil. So if I went out there and I saw a particular type of weed, sometimes it might be um, blue top weed has a strange smell and people don't like it. It's usually like an indicator of um, iron and zinc deficiency. We've got cobbler's pegs, it's a symbol of um, calcium deficiency. So all these different weeds are trying to tell us something about what's missing in the soil because what they're trying to do is reclaim that area and drop their leaves and drop and bring up those minerals to the surface to start restoring the equilibrium in your soil. Um, and we'll, obviously we come along with herbicides and we spray them and organizations are out there pulling them out by the hundreds of tons thinking that they're getting rid of noxious weeds. But really those weeds are actually the pioneer species to bring us back to an old growth forest. So they're always the first plants that come to restore a degenerated block of land. And we, th- and wow. we, we think that they're just this annoyance and this hindrance in our garden, but they're actually indicators of what's happening. And so you go from weeds and once the soil gets good, you get some grasses coming up. Once you've got grasses, you've got microclimate, which is going to provide the shade and hold the moisture for birds to fly over, drop some seeds. All of a sudden you got a little shrub or like a little spiky plant, you know, like a lantana or something. And plants are usually poisonous or spiky because they're telling mammals like us and and um, cattle to stay away. It's quarantining an area. <laughs> so if you look at somewhere like England, they've got all these blackberry brambles, and sheep want to go in there and you know eat all the things that are in there. And the brambles are like, no, you got to stay away from it. And so the sheep will, if they push in, they'll actually get all their wool caught on the brambles and they'll get more and more tangled and the brambles just completely consume (laughs) the poor sheep and um, turn it into fertilizer and then it grows even stronger. And so you've got all these plants like thorny bushes and things that you just don't want to get in your eyes and don't want to get poked by and get involuntary acupuncture from. (laughs) They're telling us to stay away. And once, once, what that invites is all the little birds to come in. The birds come in, they do all their little droppings, they've got little seeds in there and you get these emergent trees that come through those. And then we get those emergent trees and then we start getting back to an old growth forest after that. And so if you go in there with an organization, which I won't, which I won't mention, and go in there and just start clearing all of those plants out, like something like a camp for laurel is pulling so much carbon 
out of the atmosphere. It's mm. absolutely thriving in this high carbon atmosphere. And we're going down and chopping them all down and thinking that they're a noxious weed. They're all these plants actually doing their best job to try to restore the equilibrium. And we, all we're doing is, you know, cutting in, cutting them down. And so to go on to the pests that come into the pests, the pests are part of the food soil web. They are the cleanup crew of our vegetable garden. So if, our, if we've got poor soil health and now we're putting, you know, little seedlings and plants, you'll notice that if those plants have mineral deficiencies, they'll start to show leaf you know, mold and curled and their little blossom end rots and everything sort of like bit, looks a bit decrepit. It's because you've got a mineral deficiency and trace element deficiency in your soil. Now, the very interesting thing is all plants emit an electromagnetic field or an infrared field. And the antennas that are on our insects aren't just so they don't bump their head in the night. They're actually flying around and picking up on the electromagnetic mm. and the infrared frequencies that plants are emitting and they're not going to waste their time trying to chew their way and blunten their little pincers on calcium rich nutrient rich vegetables they're like a pack of lions who go after the the, the weak and the young and the sickly mm. um, uh, antelope of the herd they're going to go after the decrepit vegetables because they're much easier for them to access so you, you'll find that you've got a little zucchini or a squash that's got blossom end rot because you don't have enough boron or calcium in your soil. The pest could, would like fly around and just go, that one looks really, really hard to get into. I'm not going to try and break into that bank vault. Oh, that, that, that bank vault's already open. I'm just going to go in there. And they go in there, they clean it all up. They, you know, they're dropping little worms and maggots and the whole thing gets broken down to try to restore the equilibrium in the soil again. And so... Our pests are actually a cleanup crew and they're an indicator of what's in our soil mm. just as much as weeds are. And the most important thing that people could probably take away from this is look at your soil health. Look at, get, a, get a soil test and find out what minerals you are deficient in. And from that point on, if you bring those m minerals up, you'll have much less weeds, much less pests, and you have really amazing and organic vegetables that you're growing. And now we're consuming them. And now we're not having pests in us because the cleanup crew isn't just, you know, beholden to the, you know, the plant kingdom. Those pests and diseases can come inside us because we are deficient. So if we've got like different deficiencies, we're more susceptible to different types of illnesses. And so once we get our plant, our soil health right, our plant health right, then we get human health right. And then now with these beautiful conductors of you know, even the spiritual side of us, we can actually be really, really healthy human beings. And there's a fantastic um, example of this. Uh, my friend Dan Dayton talks about it a lot. It's the healthy Hunzas. These are some guys that live um, in the Himalayas. And there's this beautiful area where the glacier is so heavy and it just moves like this slow grind, grinding up all these mineral rich rocks that are underneath it. So when the glacier melts, it takes this what we call a glacial milk of all these minerals from the rocks down into the rivers. And these Hunzas have diverted those waterways into their agricultural irrigation systems and into their composting systems. And they have like this incredible amount of minerals in their soil and in their vegetables. And there's a, um, a study on looking at the the average lifespan 
of someone who lives in the Hansa community and it's 120 years old wow. with the, the highest recorded case of being 160. And these people have absolutely incredible teeth because a lot of the foods that we're eating are actually um, depleting us of calcium. Mm. And the first place that we deplete calcium from is our teeth. So we get fillings and all sorts of cavities. Um, but if you go back and to look at guys like um, Albrecht, who had a look at different indigenous um, tribes around the world and had a look at their, their bone structures, and they had such incredible bone density and incredible teeth. And it wasn't until Western diet started getting involved that things started to go awry. And you're looking at these incredible bones, incredible teeth, and it's all because they had mineral-rich soil. And with that comes the plant health and that comes the human health and the whole civilization was absolutely thriving. And so pests will come over your garden and go, hmm, that one looks good, that one looks bad. I'm going to go for the one that's really depleted in minerals and I'll go for that first. I mean, if you're a beginner gardener and you really want to keep pests away, there are actually companion plants that you can plant within your garden, like marigolds and milt, um, uh, mints and sages and all sorts of plants that you can put around your garden to create that biodiversity and that companion plant relationship and planting in guilds. Um, and you can protect your garden. And then you kind of confuse the pests as they come through because they're like, oh, there's all these pollens and repellents mm. floating in okay. the air. Yeah. That when they come in, they're like, no, that's just too much trouble. And they'll, just, <laughs> <laughs> they'll, just, they'll just head off. But yeah, if you, once you, it takes, you know, two, three, five years to really build up your soil health. Yeah. And it becomes an art. You become the Bob Ross of compost. You know, you just like put a little bit of brown, a little bit of green, and yeah. trickle of water and a bit of air and away we go. <laughs> <laughs> and once you start, you know, composting, composting your food scraps with a, with a bit of a little mineral mix in there, you're building really, really amazing soil. The worms are loving it. The microorganisms are going crazy. Your paramagnetism levels are just like off the Richter. And once that's in your plants, you're just like, yeah, you're crushing it from there. <laughs> Man, we could sit here and listen to you talk for hours, I know, it's but so it has quickly come to an end. Wowzers. Yeah. Uh, can you tell everyone about how they can find you? Okay, so my name is Aaron Mears, and I'm the manager of Lulu's Perch Permaculture Farm. I've got a PDC that I'm running um, on the 21st of March. I'm not sure if this video will come out in that time either way. Yeah, it'll be. Out. I'll be running. An, I'll be running another one next yeah, year. Yeah, it will. Yeah, it will. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. Um, and also the Living Classroom Project, where we go to schools all over the Sunshine Coast and down in New South Wales and teach kids permaculture. So everything I've just taught you, I'm teaching the kids. Yeah, excellent. And um, yeah, they're they're just really connecting, and that's the absolute passion of my life, and I want to do it for the the rest of my life. And yeah, thank I, you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming. And for thank those you. who are listening, if you haven't seen it already, you should really look up the video. Is it called Dogma Eye? Oh, my poem. Yeah, yes. that's that blew my mind. The, the <laughs> first time I met you, you played that for me and I went, I like this guy. The universe. The universe. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming along and talking. It's been a profoundly enlightening experience. And hopefully we can do this again in the future absolutely yes. thank you so much for having thank me thank you Aaron thank you thanks man cheers goodbye everybody come on up there <laughs>